Well, uh, before we get going today, I want you guys to say these words with me. Ready? Say, no false guilt. Say it. No false guilt. So, if there's any way that you can move from the 1015 service to Saturday night or to the 845 or 1145, a 1015 tends to be our bottleneck. And so the more seats we can give over to our community, the better. So if you come to 1015 and it's the only service you can come to, say with me, no false guilt. If you come to the 1015 service and you can come to other services, say with me, guilt. <laughs> all right? But seriously, don't want to false, I don't want to guilt trip you guys at all, but I'm just kind of making that need known. So if there's any way that you can shift those around a little bit, it really does serve those folks who come to Grace for the first time tend to come to 1015 service. So it does serve our community that way and gives them some seats. And if you're able to make that change, whether you're in here or out in the cafe even, which often overflows and fills up, uh, that would be terrific. But say it with me, no false guilt unless you can move and then guilt. Right, we got it. So... All right, thanks for being here this weekend. You're just, no, I'm joking, all right? We're starting a new series today called Sex, Kids, and Rock and Roll. And uh, in this series, what we're going to be doing is talking actually about intimacy. So intimacy in the marriage union, intimacy with our kids, how do we connect strongly with our kids and with our parents, kind of as a family, and then ultimately intimacy with God. How do we make those strong connections with God? And so we're going to start off with the marriage, and specifically with sex in marriage. Marriage is a big, big deal to God, and it's a big, big deal to family. In fact, marriage is the, is the building block of family. Mom and dad, the greatest gift you can give your children is your marriage. It's the greatest inheritance that you can leave them. Uh, my mom and dad, when they died, did not leave me a penny not a penny. They left me a mortgage, actually, but not a penny. But they gave me a great inheritance. And what they gave me was 52 plus years of marriage. So when I think about for richer, for poor, for better, for worse, for sickness and health till death do us part, I can actually look at my mom and dad and I can attach those vows to tangible activity. I can see it lived out. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I watched their marriage, which was far from perfect because mom and dad were both very dysfunctional people because, you know, birds of a feather tends to dysfunction together. We tend to find each other. And that was my mom and dad. But they loved Jesus deeply. They were committed to him. It caused them to be committed to each other, which caused them to be committed ultimately to their children. And so the security and the foundation and the head start in life that comes from a great marriage, a healthy marriage, is a wonderful gift. So when we talk about family, you want to start there. It's kind of where the Bible starts. It starts with marriage. In fact, we're not going to have a long uh, a marriage series. But if you want to look into that more deeply, about a year ago, we did a series called Sacred Vow. Sacred Vow. If you want to write that down, you can. It's on our website. And if you want to look into, even if you're single, even why marriage? Why is that such a big deal anymore? And why is it still relevant? Then on down through what God has to say about it, that series was laid out to do that. So go to the website, watch Sacred Vow, and you'll like that. Within marriage, there is 
sex, right? So sex within marriage. And sex is a very interesting thing in the Bible because of how God interacts with it. Sex is, is weird in the Bible in this. The Bible would say that all sexual activity, sexual thought, lust, images, those kind of things, outside of marriage is sinful. So the Bible would say anything that is sexual outside of marriage, sexually act- activity outside of marriage is sinful, and the Bible would call it immorality. Within the context of marriage, within the context of a biblical marriage between a man and a woman, what the Bible calls a covenantal marriage or a promise that I'm going to go through life together with you and honor God, the, the exact opposite is true. So within marriage, God sanctifies sex. He makes it holy. So something that was once sinful outside the bonds of marriage is only defined as sinful by the Bible. The same activity within marriage is made holy by the Bible. And so sex is interesting that way because what it does outside the marriage is the exact opposite inside the marriage. So outside the marriage, uh, sexual activity outside the marriage is hurtful, it's harmful, it's negative ultimately, right? It's sinful. Inside the marriage, it causes us to bond, it enriches, it heals, it helps, and it honors God. So sex is unique that way in the Bible, that God has to kind of intervene in the process by creating a biblical marriage, which is a a spiritual union between a man and a woman. And when he does that, sex goes from being sinful to sanctified, from bad to good, from unhealthy to healing right? And God literally kind of reverses how, uh, what, what happens through the sexual bond. Now, in order to talk about sex, we need to understand what marriage is about. So I encourage you on your own to read Ephesians chapter 5. Maybe write that down if you've never read it before. Ephesians chapter 5. And this guy named the Apostle Paul speaks on God's behalf, and it's written down in the Bible. And Paul defines marriage. And he says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is not just a legal union. It's not paperwork and contracts. Marriage is not just a place for parenting. What marriage ultimately is, is a teaching tool or a reflection of God's heart. So in Ephesians chapter 5, what Paul says is what marriage does is it teaches us or shows us God's great love for us. And then it teaches us how to respond to God. So as a husband and a wife interact with each other biblically, what they're doing is teaching each other about how God interacts with us and then we with God. We teach our children. We teach everybody who surrounds us uh, what God's passion is for us and how we respond to God. So marriage in the Bible is actually a reflection of God's love for us, God's interest in us, and God's passion for us. And then it's a reflection of our responsiveness as a church to God. It's all spiritual in nature. Now, it's fascinating. At the end of, of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul starts to bring up, the, bring up the idea of sex. And he says this in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, for this reason, what reason? All this illustrativeness of God's love and passion for us and our responsiveness to him For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's fascinating. Marriage is a picture of God's desire to have oneness with heart with us. God wants to be united in our hearts, be one with him. That's marriage. Sex is a physical illustration of our desire to be united one with heart with our spouse. 
So as I unite my heart with my spouse, it teaches me and shows me and reflects how God wants to unite his heart with me. As I unite my body with my spouse, it's illustrative of how I want to have unity of heart with my spouse. So sex in the Bible is all spiritual in nature. It's reflective in nature. It's meant to say something. It's meant to express something. It's not just an act. It's not just a release for a sex drive. It's much, much deeper than that. It portrays the oneness that God wants to have with us and the oneness that we have with each other that comes from a biblical marriage in which God has spiritually blessed this union between a man and a woman. So to God, sex is a, is a big deal. And it, it it's goes way beyond procreation. It goes even way beyond pleasure. Sex in the Bible is oneness. It is the most intimate act between a man and a woman physically, and it reflects the intimacy of our hearts with each other, and then ultimately the intimacy of our heart with God. Now, most of that, if not all of it's been lost today. Like, I bet you for many of us, that's the first time you ever heard anything like that, right? Because our culture does not interact with sex that way at all. In fact, most of what I just said would not even make sense to, to, to any of us who didn't kind of grow up in the church a little bit or have some understanding of the Bible. Sex in marriage is a big deal to God. Sex should be a significant part of marriage. If it's not, it should be a significant part of marriage because it reinforces that idea of oneness. It bonds us to each other. Now, in our culture, that's been lost. Our culture is sexually supercharged, right? I mean, you can't buy shampoo without thinking about sex anymore. You know, it, it's everywhere right now. We live in a sexually supercharged culture. And sex in our culture has become something that God didn't intend it to be. So in our culture, sex is thought of as entertainment. So the, the comedian's gonna joke about sex. The movie's gonna have sex. Pornography is something I do for fun. I might go to a strip joint with my buddies. Sex is entertainment in our culture. Sex in our culture is always presented devoid of relationship. So most of the time, if not all the time in our culture, when sex is brought up, there is no bond, there is no marriage union, there is no connection of heart, there's the physical act, there's no relationship there. So we'll hook up in our culture just because I wanna have sex and I wanna have fun and so I'll just hook up. There's no relationship, there's not even an expectation of one. There's uh, obligatory sex, that happens in marriage a lot. All right, it's like, oh, get it over with. I'm exhausted, right? It's obligatory. So there's no relationship or active relationship. It's just focused on the act. There's pornography. There's masturbation. There's, there's feminine pornography, which is like 50 shades of gray. That's just porn for women is all that is. It's getting lost in a thought life that's not real. It's the same thing that men would do with images, right? So it's devoid of relationship. Sex has been betrayed as something in our culture that's for me. So I get sex. I want sex. The whole idea that I would give it, that it's a gift that I share with my spouse, that there's a sanctified part of it, that it's, it's spiritual some way in nature. It's very, very foreign in our culture right now, and yet is at the heart of what the Bible would teach about sex and sexual unity. 
So when we talk about sex here this weekend, we're, we're doing that within some parameters, okay? We would make the assumption, because the Bible says any sexual activity, thought life, lust life, pornography, and a sexual activity outside the context of marriage is always sin, always. And the Bible is very, very clear about that. Within marriage, when we're going to look at what Paul teaches here, we're going to make an assumption. We're going to make an assumption that we're married, and then we're going to make the assumption that you're married to a good-hearted person. So ladies, if you can look at your husband and say, I know he's kind of lost his hair and found his weight, but he's a good-hearted guy, right? He's a good-hearted guy. He, he loves me. He loves the kids. We have a normal marriage. We fight and do all those kind of things. But I, I married a guy that's a good-hearted guy. And then same thing, husbands, when you look at your wife and you say, well, she's a good-hearted woman. Like, she loves me. She loves our family. She gives to us. We, we're, we go through normal marriage stuff, but I'm married to a well-intentioned, good-hearted person. That's the context in which I'm going to teach you what the Bible says here. Now, listen, if you have <clears throat> abusive relationships or highly manipulative relationships within marriage, then then uh, this isn't what Paul's talking about here. And we found that those tend to be individualized conversations. If sex is forced or withheld out of manipulation, that's something that we need to sit down and talk through, and we're willing to do that. We're going to make the assumption that you're married to a good-hearted person, that they love you and, and that you love them. And if there's sexual tension or misunderstanding, this is what the Bible is going to teach and kind of clear up for us. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is the same guy who wrote about marriage. This is the Apostle Paul speaking on God's behalf. So the guy that God used to define marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 is the same guy that God is using to talk about sex here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you don't have a Bible, there's some there under the chairs. It's page 796 in those Bibles. And if you have a smartphone or iPad and want to use those, we use the version app. You can uh, click on that or download it. Hit live, and our zip code is 44333. So let me kind of frame this up a little bit. Paul is writing a letter to a church, and it's a church full of people that have just started to follow Jesus. So it's kind of a new thing for them. But they live in a culture that's a lot like ours. They lived in a sexually supercharged culture. So sex was everywhere. It was crazy and totally unrestrained in this culture. It was common that you would hire a a prostitute. It was common that you would have a concubine. There were orgies. All all that insanity was a part of their, uh, their experience and their culture as well. Now, it's fascinating. The people that Paul is writing to are people who've accepted Jesus And they want to honor him. So what they have done is they've responded incorrectly to the insanity of their culture by causing sex to be taboo. They kind of forgot or didn't know that God sanctifies sex within marriage. So they look over here and say, this is nuts. We don't want anything to do with it. And so they come over here to their marriage and they say, sex is bad. So these guys are married but not having sex. Because the act of sex is thought of as taboo or dirty, okay? So Paul writes this letter into this context, and he's trying to help them understand God's view and God's heart with it. Verse 1, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. 
now for the matters you wrote about, <clears throat> it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But since sexual morality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other, except perhaps by mutual consent for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And I would say to you that in these verses is actually the key to intimacy in marriage, right? So Paul starts off in verse one, and he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now let's talk about what he's not saying. Paul is not pushing celibacy. Uh, the Bible actually does not push celibacy. That wouldn't make sense in the rest of scripture, okay? Nor is he elevating singleness. He's not saying, well, you're more spiritual if you're single as opposed to married. What he's saying is this. <clears throat> he's saying, yeah, guys, you know, if you can control yourself and not be married, then yeah, you'll be more free to serve the church. If, if being single does not affect your purity, then that's fine. If you wanna be single, be single, but purity's a big deal to God. So because immorality is rampant, don't think that you have to totally abstain from sex because the rest of the culture is sexually supercharged. If you can do it, great, but if you can't, don't get stuck on that, I'm not pushing celibacy. Then he goes on and he says this, each man should have sexual relations with his wife and wives should have sexual relations with their husband. So he's saying, just because the culture's gone nuts with sex, don't think that it's taboo within marriage. Married people should have sex frequently, right? It's a good thing. It's been sanctified by God. So a man should have sexual relations with his wife. A wife should have sexual relations with her husband. Now, how does that all then play out? This is where a good-hearted man married to a good-hearted woman this is the understanding that Paul would want us to have, verse four of chapter seven. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. What does that mean? I don't have authority over my own body, and I yield it, and I wanna camp there on verse four, because that is where the key to this intimacy is found, let's talk about this a little bit. Husbands, wives, the only relationship in which sex would not be sinful. So husbands and wives do not have authority over their own body, but they yield that authority. They yield their bodies to their spouse. We have been taught many, many lies about sex within our culture and within the church. And this is important to realize, the church has bombed at teaching sex. Many of you who have grown up in church, 
you've heard me say sex more in the last 15 minutes than you heard your whole life ever spoke about in church, right? And those of us who didn't grow up in church, we, we, we just know what the culture tells us. So Paul is kind of correcting both of those views. And in order to get to the truth, we have to start untangling the lies. So let's break this up, men and women. Guys, we're going to start with you. You have been taught lies, gentlemen, by the culture and by the church about sex. Here's some of these lies. One of the things that the church has taught in the past is this, that wives are the possession of their husbands. So you've interacted with a verse like that, and what clicks to you is authority. You're mine. You're mine. And I have authority over your own body. So you're going to do what I want, when I want, how I want, and, and you don't have a choice in it because I am husband. Right? Hear me roar. <laughs> so attractive, fellas. And so, <clears throat> but, but we get that mindset, and we've been taught that. I was taught that growing up. You know, that, I, that a wife is a possession to the husband. Another lie that we've been taught by the culture and by the church especially is this one, that my purity is my wife's responsibility. My purity is my wife's responsibility. See, baby, I wouldn't look at porn if we just had sex more. I, w- I wouldn't be lost in this thought life. I wouldn't be attracted to these things. But, y- you know, you cut me off. So uh, look what you've done to me. That's a lie. It's a lie, gentlemen. Your purity is your responsibility. It's not your wife's responsibility, it's yours. And so it's a lie that I would hold her responsible for that. Another lie that is very prominent, and this has been taught to us more by our culture, is this, is that sex is for me. Sex is for me. Sex is something that I get. It's something that I take. And that's a lie. That's not biblical at all the way that God would view sex. And this one also is often taught to us by our culture, and it's this idea that my body is mine. My body is mine. So what I do with my body is my business. I mean, I am my body. So I can think about what I want, I can look at what I want, I can go where I want, I can do what I want. It's not mine. It's not yours, it's mine. So if my wife needs me sexually, and by the way, it's a big myth that men's sex drives are always... Uh, higher than women's. So when my wife wants me or interacts with me sexually, my body is mine. She doesn't have the right to make that demand. I don't feel like dealing with you right now. I, I don't want to interact with you. The game's on. You know, maybe after the game and maybe if the Browns win. So basically never, right? So it's like, <laughs> but me looking and saying, I have a right to my body. Wait a minute. The Apostle Paul just said the exact opposite. But we would believe that, and it would wind up defining how we function sexually within our marriage, being married to a good-hearted woman. Women, you have been taught lies, many lies about sex within marriage. Here's one. This comes from the church mostly. Most marriage conferences would teach you this, right? It would come out this way. I'm a responder. See, I'm a responder. And so if if my husband would interact with me properly we would have a better sex life, but I'm a responder. So he hasn't interacted with me properly, so that's why we never have sex. That is a lie, and it's completely unfair. You just made your husband responsible for his sex life and your sex life. See, it's not biblical. It's not, you can't find it in the Bible anywhere, right? It's true emotionally, 
But the mindset towards sex is wrong and skewed. It's a lie. Here's another one, ladies, that you have been taught by the church often, that sex is an act of submission. Yeah, I, ha- I am the wife. I have to. Yeah, I, I guess I got to go honor God, right? I mean, it's that mindset. And it turns sex into an obligation. Instead of something that you give, it's something that you're kind of stuck doing. And when I view sex as an act of submission, it causes me to have a subservient mindset. And anyone who feels like they're subservient is always going to be resentful. I don't want to be subservient. That makes me mad. And so sex becomes this negative thing within a marriage because you were told that you better do it or God's going to hit you with a, a bolt of lightning. It's your job to have sex. Another lie that you're often told women, and this comes from the church too, is that your purity is your husband's responsibility. Your purity is your husband's responsibility. See, I, 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 if he would pay more attention to me, I wouldn't flirt with those guys at work. If he would pay more attention to me, then I wouldn't feel like I needed to, to show my body to other people. I have to do this for me. He never compliments me, but that guy does, and so I kind of want to be near him. If he would pay more attention to me, then I wouldn't be talking to people on Facebook, right? And the idea that, that your purity is your husband's responsibility is a lie. See? Your purity is your responsibility. And when you're lost in romance, and Fifty Shades of Grey, and the romance novels, and you have this idea that, you know, Fabio's going to come up on a white horse with long hair and sweep you up your feet. Can we all just agree that's creepy? <laughs> Do you really want that to happen? I, if that ever happens, dial 911. There's something <laughs> deeply wrong there, right? So I look at my husband and I think, well, if you were, then I wouldn't. Your purity is your responsibility. It's not your husband's responsibility. But that's a lie that we've been told that we believe. And then here's the one that comes from our culture, ladies, and this ingrains you very, very deeply. You've been taught this since you were a little girl, that, it, that my body is mine. My body is mine. Don't tell me what to do with my body. You don't have a say what happens with my body. My body is mine, and you're not allowed to trespass on it unless I tell you it's okay. So when your husband comes to you and he wants to interact with you sexually, he wants to create oneness with you, feeling like, eh, forget it. If, I, if you were nicer to me, if you were Fabio, you don't even have hair anymore. I don't want it, right? And that that mindset is deeply ingrained in women in our culture. And yet, the Bible just said the exact opposite. The exact opposite. That in a covenant marriage to a good-hearted man, I'm not talking about abuse or manipulation, good-hearted man, that authority, he has authority, and I'm yielding. He's not taking, I'm giving that over. See, these mindsets, guys... These lies drive us and they affect the intimacy that we have with our wife, the oneness of heart. Ladies, these lies drive us and these mindsets are not correct. They're not God-honoring and they're poison to the intimacy of our relationships. Now, the Bible would view this very, very differently. And the Bible would say this. The Bible would say that the purpose of sex within marriage is to bless our spouse through the embracing of their needs. Now, I want you to hear what I didn't just say. I didn't say that the purpose of sex within marriage is to meet our spouse's sexual needs. Very different. 
The purpose of sex within marriage is to bless our spouse through the embracing of their needs. Meeting and embracing are very different things, okay? So if I look and say, the job of sex within marriage is I, you know, they've got a sex drive, I've got to do something about it. No, no, no. The idea of embracing is that I get to, have to and get to really affect the heart. And so the thought that I, I get to, I get to minister, I get to give. The word embrace is the idea of joy. It's the idea of passion, eagerness, willingness. I want to. I get to serve and give to my husband or my wife. And that's how the Bible would view sex. The biblical mindset says, I've been brought into my spouse's life to embrace and meet their needs like Jesus wants to embrace and meet mine. I get to minister. I get to be a conduit of Jesus' love and affection to my spouse. So God would look at your husband or your wife and God would love them like a son or a daughter. God would want them to feel loved. He wants you to feel loved. He wants you to feel comfort. He wants you to feel energized and confident and affirmed and passionate. And God created you to receive those kind of feelings, to have those needs met through sexual oneness. When you bring sex into the confines of marriage, it's sanctified, and now what was harmful and hurtful out here becomes healing and helpful here. I feel loved, I feel connected, I feel whole, I feel affection, I feel my needs being met physically, sure, emotionally, absolutely, and spiritually, because this whole thing is spiritual in nature. Marriage is spiritual, and the reason why you leave your father and mother and become one flesh is spiritual at its core. God ministers to your spouse and vice versa. Through sexual oneness, it brings all of those emotions to bear. That's why when sex is outside of God's plan, what is helpful is completely destructive out here. When sex is abused through force, when sex is used as manipulation, when sex is only offered as obligation, it has the exact opposite effect. Not only do those needs go unmet, so I came to my spouse and I, I needed comfort or I wanted security or, or I, wanted, I wanted energized or I, I wanted passion, I wanted to connect with you in a oneness. Not only do those needs go unmet when sex is abused, but actually when sex is interacted with incorrectly, those needs are amplified within that person that God wanted to meet them within. So wives, for instance, when you reject your husband sexually, you're not just bugging him because he can't have sex. You're making massive statements to his heart. Now, listen, you're good-hearted women, so you don't mean to do this. You don't always know that you're doing it because you can't understand men inside and out, right? But this is what happens. When I reject my husband sexually, what I'm doing is I'm reinforcing his insecurities. He came to the one person that he actually trusted his soul to on earth, you, and wanted to interact with you in a representation of oneness, the two becoming one flesh. And you said, I got a headache, I'm tired, I'd rather be on Facebook. 
you have struck not at his body, but literally at his soul. When you reject him sexually, you attack his masculinity. Ladies, listen to me. As much as you wish your husband would understand your femininity, your husband actually wishes that you would understand his masculinity. And it's not, I got needs. It's not his sex drive. It's more than that. He doesn't feel like a man when his soulmate doesn't respond to him sexually, right? You attack that. You cause him stress instead of relieving stress. When he comes home and you look at him and say, well, if you weren't such a grump, then maybe. Well, wait a minute. What if you were an instrument God wanted to use to bring comfort to his life? When I think of sex as selfish, then he better show up properly. When I think of sex as selfless, I get to bring ministry to him. When you reject him, he loses the confidence that if he pursues oneness with his soulmate, she will respond to him. And when that rejection happens, he's not upset that he didn't get to have sex. He's hurt because his lover didn't sympathize and embrace her champion. So you wake up one day and you say, we're so distant, we're so distant. And he's always angry. Why is that? Because that's the way a man's gonna respond, right? When men get hurt, we get angry. When we feel insecure, we get angry. When we're scared, we're angry. When, when, we're, when, we, when we need comfort, we're angry, right? When we're unsure, we're angry. And when we're angry, we're angry. We only really have one emotion. We're pretty easy to figure out, <laughs> right? But that's what stirs all that. He never used to be that way. Well, wait a minute. There's lots of dynamics in that relationship. And ladies, one of the part of masculinity that's hard to understand is we will only bond to one or two or three people in our lives. It's usually our mom, maybe a buddy, and then most completely to you. And so men, the culture would say, well, men are just about sex. No, that's actually a lie, right? We don't know any different, so we believe the lies that activate on them usually. But for sex, for men, sex is a very vulnerable thing because we've actually opened our soul up and we don't do that much. So when rejection happens, now gentlemen, this road flows both directions. When you reject your wife sexually, see she's coming to you sexually for a whole bunch of things. She may have a bigger sex drive than you do. You know, that's, that's fine, no big deal. Rarely are people exactly the same, it's not a big deal. But she's not coming to you just for sex, just like you aren't. She's coming to you with her body, mind, and her soul. She's reaching out to her soulmate. So when you reject her physically, you have reinforced and cemented her insecurities. See, she, she risked that. That's an act of intimacy. It's a risk. It's a nakedness to go and to approach her husband sexually. And when you reject that, you didn't strike at her body, you struck at her soul. And that's why she would respond in such a negative way. You've actually attacked her femininity. Fellas, you wanna be understood? 
seek to understand. I don't understand women. I know, me neither. That's why we serve. That's why we live in an understanding way with our wife. That's why we become students of them. This is what you did when you dated. You pursued, you pursued, you pursued. And so when I reject her sexually, I reject her femininity. And that statement is massive to a woman. As much as it undercuts you and your manhood, it undercuts her and her femininity. And it strikes at her soul. You cause her fear. She feels scared and alone and distant or insecure, so she reaches to her soulmate sexually. And part of what she's saying is comfort me, be with me, reassure me, and the game's on. We did that last month. Leave me alone. You've made a massive statement to her. And she loses the confidence that you find her attractive, that you find her engaging, that you find her intriguing, and that you find her captivating. And when she loses that confidence, she starts to build walls with her soulmate. She's not the way she used to be. Right. Because you always used to receive her. And now she's going to put up those guards in her life too. She's not upset that she didn't get sex. She's scared to death. This is what she's thinking. See, she's scared to death. Well, I've gotten old. Well, I've gotten unattractive. Well, the babies have taken their toll on my body. He doesn't find me captivated anymore. He doesn't find me intriguing anymore. And it strikes at who she is. Now, how does God view that? Because marriage isn't between two people, it's between three. It's your husband, your wife, and your Lord. So how does God look at his daughter as she's hurting because his son was callous to her and vice versa? God's plan for sex is that he meets our needs through our spouse, He looks and says, I I want those needs to be met. I love you guys. That's why I gave you each other. And you have this, you have the ability to have oneness in marriage. And and the, the sex act, the two becoming one flesh, screams that oneness. What does that do to his heart and his care for you? Did God create us to have sex just so we procreate? I mean, is that real? the God of the universe? That's the only way He could think to make babies. Did God cause us to bond sexually for a reason? We're the only part of creation that does that. Animals don't bond through sex; it's an act for them. But you're a human being; you're not an animal. Created the image of God. We're different. Animals don't care, right? Heidi and I breed dogs. They come and breed in our backyard. Our backyard is a den of iniquity. I mean, there's breeding happening all over the place. They don't care. They don't care. It's all instinct, you know? They'll have sex in our backyard. The girl dogs aren't like, I hope he calls later. They don't care, right? And the guy dogs don't care. Why? Because they're animals. They're dogs. Why is it that we care? Why does it bond us? Why Why does sex hurt us, our heart and our soul? Because it's, it's so much more than some physical act, see? It's teaching and reminding and sharing and ministering 
The oneness that God wants to have with our heart is created and demonstrated in the oneness of marriage that we have with each other. The oneness that we have in marriage, the oneness of heart we have in marriage is reflected as the two become one flesh. So we make statements to each other. We give to each other. We bless each other all through sex within marriage. The culture has made sex an act when in reality it's an expression. The culture has made sex a selfish endeavor. I'm going to get it, get some. When in reality it's a gift, it's given, a yield. That's the word that, what, what that word means. It's not my body and I give it eagerly, willingly to my spouse. The culture has made sex devoid of relationship when in reality it actually affects all of our relationships. Any of us who have been sexually abused know that. That wound affects the way we see the world and we have to let God rewire all that because it's only meant to be engaged in in relationship. And the church has bombed at this too. The church has taught that sex is taboo. It's dirty. We don't talk about it. When in reality, once sex is sanctified, it's all about freedom. It's all about freedom and enjoyment. The church has taught sex as a demand. That's like, go ahead. It's Tuesday. In reality, it's a gift. I get to, I get to serve and minister. The church has taught that sex is an obligation. And in reality, it's a gateway to intimacy. See? You cannot have a healthy marriage if you don't have a, se- a healthy sex life. You can't. Because sex isn't about the physical act. It's about the connection of the heart. And when you remove the physical act from the relationship, the walls and the barriers come up in the heart. And that starts to affect all of our marriages, right? This is a big deal. And it's intimacy. It's going back to the core of what marriage is and understanding that at the core of what marriage is, that's why a man or a woman would leave their father and their mother and the two will become one flesh spiritual, and it's reflective of God's desire for oneness with us.